This week, Judge Furman rules on funds in Revlon Black Swan, City to Appeal, Garrett parties to negotiate over the weekend, Cedral Partners file Chapter 11 plan, meeting milestone. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelton. Later, for our weekly deep dive, with the increased number of equity issuances in the past year due to COVID-19, and more recently, the flood of IPOs, including through SPACs, Peter Washkowitz will discuss the impact of equity issuances and IPOs on companies' flexibility under their debt documents, including increased flexibility to incur debt, pay dividends, and transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries. It's Friday, February 19th. Judge Jesse Furman of SDNY handed down a hotly anticipated opinion on a, quote, black swan event. That is, Citibank's mistaken transfer of $893 million to Revlon's term lenders last August. In a victory for the asset manager defendant sued by term loan agent Citibank, the court ruled on Tuesday that the defendant's clients can keep $500 million erroneously sent by the agent. Citibank filed a lawsuit to claw back funds from the term lenders advised or managed by the investment firm defendants, including Brigade, HPS, Symphony, Barden Hill, and Grey Wolf. In his opinion, however, Judge Furman agreed with the defendants that they are protected by New York's discharge for value rule. The opinion explained that although the law generally treats failure to return money that is wired by mistake as unjust enrichment or conversion and requires the recipient to return the funds, the discharge for value defense provides an exception to this principle where the recipient held a bona fide claim against the transfer. According to Judge Furman, application of this rule, in this case, quote, ultimately turns on whether the defendants, or more precisely, their clients, were on constructive notice of Citibank's mistake at the moment they received the August 11th wire transfers. The judge concluded that the evidence established the defendants did reasonably believe that the August 11th payments were prepayments in full of the 2016 Revlon term loan. The, quote, real explanation for the payments, a banking error of perhaps unprecedented nature and magnitude, understandably did not occur to them. At the end of the ruling, Judge Furman emphasized that the defendants and their clients, quote, are not yet necessarily free to do with the money what they want. The TRO in the case remains in place, and Citibank has signaled that it will appeal the ruling. At a status conference on Friday, counsel for Garrett Motion Debtors, their COH Group Plan allies, and the official equity committee told Judge Michael Wiles that they have engaged in, quote, active and constructive discussions toward reconciling their competing plans since the adjourned disclosure statement approval and exclusivity termination hearing on February 16th. Another status conference is set for Monday, February 22nd at 11 a.m. ET. Questions and comments from Judge Wilds at the February 16th hearing convinced the debtors and their allies to engage in immediate negotiations with the Equity Committee rather than proceed on their disclosure statement approval motion. The official Equity Committee on Monday filed a revised version of their competing plan and disclosure statement which splits Class 4 prepetition credit agreement claims into two subgroups, an unimpaired subgroup 4A and an impaired subgroup 4B. Class 4B would allow claim holders to opt in and receive their share of up to $500 million of the exit facility at a slight discount on 
to par, and an undefined share of subscription rights for the new Series A preferred stock. The revised plan also increases by $50 million the first amortization payment to Honeywell International and lowers the cap on equity cash-out option, now giving equity holders the right to receive $7 per share for up to $113 million, down from $225 million in the prior plan. That same day, the debtors filed an amended version of their COH group plan, which is sponsored by Centerbridge and Oaktree and supported by Honeywell and a group of large shareholders and a related disclosure statement. The amended plan continues to provide for pre-petition secured lenders to receive full payment of their secured credit facility claims in cash, but the claim amount now includes additional interest of 1% on all outstanding principal and other overdue amounts from the pre from the petition date to the effective date, in addition to principal and non-default interest. The company also filed its 10K on Tuesday, reporting fourth quarter net sales of $1 billion, up from $830 million in the fourth quarter of 2019. The company reported full-year adjusted EBITDA of $440 million, implying fourth-quarter adjusted EBITDA of $149 million, compared with full-year 2019 adjusted EBITDA of $583 million and fourth-quarter 2019 adjusted EBITDA of $137 million. The Cedrill Partners debtors met a restructuring milestone last weekend by filing their first Chapter 11 plan and disclosure statement, after entering into a PSA on February 12th with the consenting TLB lenders. The lenders own over 75% of the pre-petition term loan facility, and the plan would equitize approximately $2.7 billion in secured term loan obligations and allow the company to optimize business operations, Cedrill Partners says. The debtors target an April 7th combined hearing on the final DS approval and plan confirmation. Under the plan, Class 3 Super Senior Term Loan Claims and Class 4 TLB Secured Claims would each receive their respective pro-rata shares of new common stock, quote, in an amount to be determined consistent with the PSA. These distributions would be subject to dilution by any new common stock issued under an employee incentive plan. In lieu of receiving new common stock, Class 4 TLB Secured Claims could elect to receive a, quote, cash-out amount subject to a, quote, cash cap, in an amount to be identified in an amended version of the plan, consistent with the PSA. Holders of general and secured claims would receive a pro-rata share of an amount of cash also to be determined, also to be consistent with the PSA. And in an apparent reference to Cedril Partners' dispute with Cedril Limited, which filed for Chapter 11 on February 10th over the party's MSA, quote, Cedril parties have been explicitly carved out of the plan's definition of released parties and exculpated parties. During Cedra Limited's first day hearing, counsel for Cedra Limited remarked about the company's relationship with Cedra Partners, saying that, quote, there might be some issues between these family members. In its last monthly report on the front-end transition process, Luma Energy says ongoing challenges are a, quote, serious concern on the path to a targeted June 1st service commencement under its contract to run the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's transmission and distribution system, adding that the public utility will likely still be in the Title III bankruptcy when the handover occurs. Looking ahead, the report outlines new key focus areas in February, including the start of development of a new fiscal plan in conjunction with PREPA for certification by the PROMISA Oversight Board. 
The Feb 11th report filed with the Puerto Rico Public Private Partnerships Authority, or P3A, and the Puerto Rico Energy Bureau, or PREB, states that Luma progressed in all work areas towards a mid-year commencement date for the 15-year Operation and Maintenance Agreement, or OAM, pointing to gains on regulatory matters, recruiting, and transition plan development. However, Luma added that ongoing challenges are, quote, impacting the effectiveness of the front-end transition. Quote, these challenges showed marginal progress in January. However, most, most continue to persist with no clear resolution and are becoming a serious concern given the time remaining to achieve a June 1, 2020 service commencement, Numa says. After the Promisa Oversight Board submitted a certificate of no objection, Judge Laura Taylor Swain on Tuesday entered an order granting the Oversight Board's motion to extend the court's deadline to file a plan of adjustment or comprehensive term sheet to March 8th. In its urgent motion requesting the deadline extension, the Oversight Board said it had reached an agreement in principle with principal parties to the existing Commonwealth Plan Support Agreement, which collectively holds about $7 billion in general obligation and public building authority bonds. Regarding the terms of an amended plan of adjustment for the Commonwealth, the Employees Retirement System of the Government of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, and the Puerto Rico Public Buildings Authority. Top Red Stories this week included... Breaking, Washington Prime Group withholds $23.2 million interest payment on senior notes due 2024. Cineworld's super priority agreement curtails dissenting shareholder payments from incurrence of new debt. Navient moves to dismiss frivolous involuntary case, says petitions do not remotely satisfy involuntary filing standards. Now, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Thank you and good morning. A lot of earnings this week, starting with the Royal Caribbean on February 22nd, which also brings Cimarex and Laredo, both of them in the hydrocarbon extraction business. And in Neiman Marcus, there's a motion to modify discharge injunction to continue litigation hearing. Okay. Tuesday, February 23rd, earnings from Macy's Realogy, Cumulus Media and Transocean, and a contempt motion hearing in Highland Capital. Wednesday, February 24th, earnings from Bausch, Centennial Resources, Neighbors Industries, Cal Petroleum, Cleveland Cliffs, and L Brands. Thursday, February 25th, earnings from iHeartMedia, Indo International, Summit Midstream, and an exclusivity extension hearing in Malincrote. And Friday, February 26th, stay relief hearings in Valeris and Fieldwood, and pre-trial conferences in Rentpath and Widstream. There's plenty more for which I'll direct you to our weekly calendar, released every Monday. Back to New York. And up next, here's Peter Washkowitz discussing the impact of equity issuances and IPOs on companies' flexibility under their debt documents. Thanks, guys. So today I'm going to be talking about how proceeds from equity issuances and cash contributions um, flow through debt documents and how those amounts could potentially significantly increase a company's ability to incur debt and liens, pay dividends, or make investments, including transfers to unrestricted subsidiaries. While these baskets in debt documents um, you know, have been around for a long time, and while we have included them in all of our debt document summaries for years now, um, they've become a lot more relevant in the last year as more and more companies have uh, have issued equity to fortify liquidity in the face of uh, you know COVID COVID closures of the economy, and uh, more recently how a number of uh, private sponsored companies have gone public, either through an IPO or through a SPAC. Um, with, the, with the increase of these equity, equity issuances and IPOs, uh, these baskets take on a lot more relevance. 
Um, so generally speaking, um, proceeds from equity issuances and cash contributions uh, usually can be used by a company to either incur contribution debt or to make or to pay dividends and make investments through increased capacity under uh, ECF-based or uh, CNI-based builder baskets or under an excluded contributions basket. Um, where properly drafted, a debt document will not allow a company to use those proceeds um, for uh, for issuing contribution debt and uh, paying dividends and investments, each with the with the amount of those proceeds. The uh, how it should be correctly stated in a credit agreement or a, an indenture is that that amount is a shared amount, and to the extent it's used to incur debt, it reduces uh, capacity to pay dividends and make investments. Um, however, uh, that is not always the case with these documents, and um, every now and then we see documents where. Um, if a company uses proceeds from equity issuances, let's say, for um, you know to be added to their builder basket to pay dividends, that amount is not reduced by um, the amount of proceeds that have have previously been used to incur contribution debt or um, any usage of an excluded contributions basket. Um, one of the more important features of these baskets that uh, provide capacity based on uh, equity issuances and cash contributions is uh, temporal limitations. And, and by that, I mean um, what you'd want to see in debt documents is, for instance, in uh, contribution debt baskets, that a borrower or an issuer can incur debt based on contribution, cash contributions and proceeds from equity issuances received after closing or the issue date. Um, where these uh, baskets do not provide any temporal limitations, um, the company could use that those uh, contribution debt basket to incur debt based on all proceeds from equity issuances and all cash contribution re, all cash contributions received historically. Um, that is the same thing for um, for for the builder basket and for the excluded contributions basket. Um, where this becomes particularly important. Um, in a, uh, for a situation like AMC, which I think is um, one of the more topical situations of a company uh, that has recently issued a significant amount of equity, uh, raised a significant amount of proceeds, um, and um, and you know is looking for all types of ways to uh, fortify liquidity and increase flexibility under its debt documents. Um, so AMC has a credit agreement that was originally dated uh, that, that was originally entered into in 2013. Um, in the last year, the company has issued a, a significant amount of first lien and second lien debt uh, through the capital markets. Um, each one of the do- each one of its debt documents are, are drafted similarly in respect of baskets allowing uh, for capacity based on uh, cash contributions and proceeds from equity issuances. However, the temporal limitations in those baskets are all over the place, and the end result is that the company does not have um, as much flexibility as one would think uh, based on having received uh, historically over a billion dollars in uh, cash contribution in uh, proceeds from equity issuances. Um, so in uh, in uh, in each one of the, the company's debt documents, it has a uh, typical uh, post-equity issuance uh, uh, dividend basket. And these dividend baskets typically allow companies to pay dividends uh, equal to uh, 6% of proceeds received from equity issuances. Um, and sometimes it's based on uh, you know, both uh, proceeds from equity issuances and a percent of market capitalization or both, whichever is higher. In AMC's debt documents, however, that basket limits um, the, the proceeds from equity issuances to those received prior to the entry into that specific debt document. 
So, um, you know, while um, while AMC has, you know, while it recently issued uh, 2026 first lien notes in, Jan- in January, um, that would include all proceeds from the company's IPO, uh, its two secondary offerings a, a year or two after the IPO, and certain recent, uh, pro- uh, re- certain recent proceeds from equity issuances. Under the credit agreement, which was entered into before the company's IPO, um, the, the dividend basket would allow no capacity, given that um, all proceeds from equity issuances ha- um, needed to be received prior to uh, prior to entry into the credit agreement, and all of these proceeds were received after entry. Um, in, in addition, although most of AMC's debt documents um, include um, excluded contribution and builder baskets that increase capacity based on proceeds from equity issuances, um, only its most recent issuance, uh, which are the two tw- 2026 Mudrick First Lien Notes, limit uh, capacity under the available amount and excluded contributions basket to proceeds from equity issuances received after July 31st, 2020. So whereas in each of the other baskets under its debt documents, uh, under each of the builder baskets and excluded contribution baskets, um, all proceeds from the IPO and um, and all proceeds uh, received to date would increase capacity. Uh, the Mudrick notes limit the amount of proceeds to those received in about the last year. So you can see how the interplay of all of these baskets in in each of a company in each of the company's debt documents kind of really influences how much additional flexibility it will have um, to incur debt and uh, to pay dividends and investments based on proceeds from equity issuances. Um, now there are a few recent um, examples that that are that are interesting to discuss. Um, so with uh, when PetSmart uh, dividended the equity of Chewy uh, to an unrestricted subsidiary and to a sponsor, um, it needed to have about uh, about two billion dollars of capacity to do those transfers. Um, now, under the notes, under certain notes that were issued to uh, to acquire Chewy, um, they had an excluded contributions basket and they had um, a, a builder basket that included proceeds from uh, proceeds from cash contributions. There was um, there was a lot of controversy over whether the company was able to add the two billion dollar equity contribution to purchase Chewy um, into those baskets. Uh, the company eventually um, resolved the case with lenders, uh, but but it's 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 important that um, you know the wording of these of these baskets and and particularly when proceeds from equity issuances can be added to these baskets. Um, it was a very important issue and kind of you know if the if the transaction had gone through the court system, um, that would have been a, a big focus of all parties. One trend we've been seeing more of, particularly in the capital markets, uh, new high yield issuances, are debt, are contribution debt baskets that provide uh, capacity based on two hundred percent of proceeds from equity issuances and cash contribution cash contributions received after issuance. Um, more concerning is that many of these baskets have corresponding liens baskets that allow all of that debt to be secured. If it's a secured issuance, it would allow all of that debt to be secured on a parry basis. So here, while the temporal limitations are exactly what you'd want, i.e. that uh, capacity bills based on proceeds uh, received after issuance, um, 
because the capacity is based on 200% of the amount of those contributions and, pro- and equity proceeds, and because that basket can be secured, um, it provides the company with significantly more uh, capacity to, to incur secured debt than, uh, than, a, a standard, uh, than a standard contribution debt basket, which is um, usually limited to 100% of the proceeds and generally does not have a corresponding liens basket. Um, finally, one other thing we have been seeing, and this is a lot less frequently but still interesting, is um, is that while most post-equity uh, issuance proceeds uh, dividend baskets that allow capacity based on 6% of proceeds received or, uh, you know, or market capitalization, uh, while those baskets typically are limited to uh, annual dividends, um, sometimes we'll see baskets that allow uh, that capacity to be used for any uh, defined term restricted payment, which includes, uh, which includes uh, investments and prepayments. So in these baskets, um, companies could have significantly more capacity to transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries, given not only is it an annual basket, but in the case of uh, companies, uh, in, in the case of baskets uh, based on uh, market capitalization, it could give the company even greater capacity to transfer assets, especially in uh, today's market where uh, valuations are, are sky high and, and it does not seem like they are coming down anytime soon. Anyway, that was a quick overview of, uh, of how proceeds from equity issuances and cash contributions flow through debt documents. Um, we are always available to discuss if anyone has any questions. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Peter. And thank you, listeners, for again tuning in to Reorg's Weekly Review. As always, you can find all of our podcasts on the Reorg.com media page, Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. See you next Friday.